0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode
1: 170, The Paradox.
0: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
1: Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me again as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And the summer break is off. We're back on the air. And I have a fantastic guest today, Ethan Akana, who runs a talent agency just for physicians. It's a lot of fun. We get into discussion about why he started the business, how it's a totally different way of looking at getting compensated for a physician, having someone who is your agent as opposed to Negotiating on your own and maybe look having your attorney look over the contract. We talk about how what he does is different and actually is probably more advantageous and he gives you strategies that you would ordinarily not have and the resources you would not normally have if you were just working on your own to try and figure out what you're getting compensated at the institution you're working at. We also talk about hospitals, what they really think about, physicians, because he was also on the other side of the negotiating table, which is why he probably is so effective and has those insights that other people just wouldn't have because he's been working for the hospital and now he works for physicians. As always, you can go to the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 170. There you can find links to uh, Ethan's contact information at Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, and you can find his social links. But without further ado, Ethan Akana in a talent agent for physicians. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my new friend, Ethan Nakana. He's the founder of the Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, which is a sports management agency, except has physicians as clients. Ethan earned his JD and MBA at the University of Dayton and cut his teeth in hospital administration, where he served in roles as hospital finance, physician contracting, compensation, operations, and strategy. So, Ethan, thanks so much for coming on The Paradox. Yeah, Eric,
0: thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you.
1: Well, I heard you on the Anesthesia Practice Management Success podcast, which I recommend to anyone who's well, and seizure pain who's <laughs> interested in that. But it's a great podcast with Justin Harvey. Uh, but I really found your 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 business unique. Why don't you talk to briefly about your business and why you decided to do it?
0: Yeah, my business is very simple, Eric. It is a sports management or a talent agency, except the difference is that instead of the athletes that we normally see are the actors, the talent that I manage are doctors. And so really what I do is the same thing as agents do in other industries, sports, entertainment, and I negotiate my client's deals for maximum value to my client and on the best team. So, you know, it's not just making a bunch of money. You also want to be on a team that uh, aligns with your values and needs, fulfills your needs. So that's really what I do is I help doctors be on the best team for the most amount of money.
1: Well, and going through your background, clearly you spent a lot of time in in medicine, in the hospital, on the hospital side of things, which are by most physicians seen as the enemy, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the, the, right? I mean that generally, generally is kind of the view viewpoint of that. I know your, um, I think your mother was a is a physician as well. So how did that sort of influence where you ended up? I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it had all of the influence in the world. Frankly, from a young age, my mother told me get into healthcare, get into medicine you will always have a job, but people are always going to be sick. And, you know, that resonated with me. What what I didn't quite understand or appreciate is the the necessary skills that you all have in the sciences. I don't share that. And so my path then became more administrative. And so I started to build my skill set to become a hospital CEO. That was what my, my version of being in healthcare was going to be. And unfortunately, about three years ago, I got let go from a job, and I thought that this was the safe route. And you know, you climb the ladder, you do all the right things, and you get rewarded for it. And uh, I found that not to be the case, you know. And so, if that's not the safe route, then I'm going to bet on myself and do something that I'm passionate about. And so, about three years ago, after that experience, I launched Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, and really, it the whole purpose of this is to empower and enable physicians to understand their value in the market. You know, frankly, physicians don't need me. You know, you can go out and negotiate your deal on your own, many physicians do. The reason physicians choose me is because I spent 15 years on the other side of the table. I know how hospitals are going to talk to you, how they think about you. I know the data they're going to use to uh, uh, approach your salary. And so I use exactly what I did on the other side against doctors. Now I use it to help doctors get the value they deserve.
1: You're kind of leveling the field from an information standpoint, right? Because you have so, someone who's got a team of lawyers. They've got, they talk to other hospital administrators and their conferences. And so they have their strategies for, you know, bringing the data, MGMA or whatever the, the metrics are they use, right? So uh, it's, it's a very interesting concept. I mean, I've not heard sort of... The, looking at physicians as talent. I mean, I think that's not, that is not my impression of how hospitals see physicians. Is that accurate? I mean, Is that just kind of a cynical view of hospital administrators or do you find that they are looking at them as physicians more as cogs, you know, input devices to, to deliver t- care?
0: Yeah, I will provide
1: my perspective.
0: I'm so curious as a physician, Eric, what's your perspective and experience? Uh,
1: my experience has been that when I have when I take care of administrators like as a, when I'm a physician their physician their their impression is that you know I'm a great guy I'm the doctor I'm the one who's you know leading the team or whatever but when you have on the negotiating end it's very much uh, seen as I think just another per, no, no, another part and uh, that you're replaceable mm. easily and that uh, you're not only can we replace you with other physicians, we can replace you with non-physicians in many oh. cases, especially if they're if they cost less. And in talking to other physicians, certainly they see that more than I do. I've not really been involved too much in negotiation. We're I were the single specialty um, group. We're independent. We just contract with hospitals. We have a good, great relationship with our hospitals, and actually we get along fine. Although negotiations, you know, challenging. Which that's sort of how negotiations always are. Uh, but. I talk to other uh, friends who and other specialties around the state of Michigan, for instance, and they'll talk about how, you know, the hospitals just say, well, we're just going to replace your entire group with a bunch of travelers or whatever, because the market's not conducive to you, to paying us, paying you a lot of money because, you know, we've got so many options. You definitely see that in ER, for instance.
0: Yes. Yes. ER. Yeah. You're spot on. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued to know the doctor's perspective because, I think as a hospital administrator, I always saw doctors as almost a deity. You know, you walk on water and, oh, that's Dr. Larson and he is just amazing. And and I still, frankly, I still believe that. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know that my hospital executive colleagues share that perspective. And so your experience tends to be a fairly common one where they have all of the admiration, respect, and appreciation for you in the world until you come to the negotiation table. And then you can be replaced, your skill set's not unique, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I have a hospital, I won't speak my opinion, I'll just share what my hospital executive colleagues said to me. I work with um, residency programs all over the country. You know, I was actually with U of M in Ann Arbor not too long ago with um, their hand surgery fellows. Uh, and a few other other orthopods and one of the things I shared with them is w- my executive colleague buddy who is in a hospital says to me about new doctors doctors who are building their business or they're recruiting they think about doctors in three ways we want to get them as busy as possible as fast as possible or as cheap as possible and when you understand that that's how you run a business it takes some of the emotion out of it. And, and you know, I often talk to my doctors, when you go into those discussions, it's not about your value, your worth. Your worth as a doctor, Eric, is intrinsic. It doesn't change. It is monumental. Now, the market value for your skills can change based on circumstances, environmental factors, scarcity of your specialty, scarcity of doctors. You know, the market value can change, but your worth doesn't. And I often draw that distinction because it's easy in those negotiation conversations to question your worth. Am I really as good a doctor as I thought I was? Because I feel not so important right now. I shared a post on LinkedIn maybe yesterday that, that said, um, you know, this is one of the saddest parts of my job. When doctors say what you just said, I feel disposable. I feel replaceable. That breaks my heart. And so, you know, in the short time that I get to work with doctors, you're number one, and so I get to help, you know, promote you and talk about how amazing of a physician you are, and drive up the value for you, uh, because it's, you know, that's just not your training as a physician. That's my training as a hospital suit, uh, and now I use it to
1: help help you all. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked to Stacia Dearman. A long time ago, early in this episode, you have to go way back. Uh, but she she basically specialized in malpractice. Uh, helping, she's an ER physician. She went through a bad situation with malpractice in a case that was, well, not her fault, you know, one of those things. But very much the same sentiment is there as far from a physician, like the, the feeling that once you get that lawsuit, maybe it was not really your fault, or, you know, there's circumstances that happened and that were sort of out of your control. But anyway, you automatically feel that sense of worthlessness, that that sense of uh, being devalued, uh, because now you know everything sort of moves into a financial sort of transaction, which is kind of strange. But also the fact that you know you're you're being questioned is sort of your your value as a, a healthcare professional, and so it seems like it's kind of in some ways somewhat the same thing, you know, the same uh-huh. at least reaction and experience. What do you? Well, you were on both sides, You've been on both sides now. <laughs> So what is where's the biggest mistake docs do when they go into these negotiations? Because I mean that that's probably what you're I mean that's what you're helping them overcome. Cuz I think there are two different types. We're talking one the new grads, the ones who are coming in to sign a new contract right out of the residency or fellowship, right? And then of course the other would be the someone who's established, who's been there, you know, 10, 15 years has their practice.
0: Yeah, there's there's two things that stand out. The first one is super succinct and it really is making sure that when you go into those conversations, whether you're you know, residency to retirement, You're talking about things that matter to the hospital executive. So when you go into the conversation, you talk about how busy you are, quality, your patient SAT scores, your leadership responsibilities. But what you don't talk about is my mortgage, my alimony, all (laughs) of your personal, my student loans. I know, you know, most doctors have, you know, three to 500 in student loans and You don't even talk about that, right? That's not relevant to your value proposition for the hospital. So that's for one is talking about things that matter to you and not the person on the other side of the table. The second thing, and this is one that unfortunately is a tough one to overcome. So I'm glad that you and I are having this discussion. When doctors, and I'm actually having one of these discussions today. When doctors go into contract discussions, the easiest way for them to get what they want is by first having looked at the market to see, can I pursue another offer? And if you can and you can secure another conversation, now your employer has to make a difficult decision. Do they replace you? Uh, Which means they're gonna have a gap, patients aren't gonna be cared for, they're gonna have to pay a replacement cost, or do they just pay you the modest increase to get you to where you need to be, according to the market? So the most important thing for doctors to get what they have earned in those conversations is to bring in a second offer. And many times what happens is I have doctors who are well-established, mid-career, and they say, Ethan, I want to raise, but I'm not willing to look at other options. Cool, then you're just asking your employer to be nice. And that's not really a fundamental value of most employers. So yeah. you really have to you know, speak in terms that they understand replacement cost you know what is it going to cost them to get you to the market you know I have one doctor right now who's more about 100k behind the market and so you know I mentioned her ad doctors pay me a lot of money to say the difficult things and I have to say to her if you're not willing to look at options it's not very likely they're going to give you the dollars that you're asking for
1: and when you're Mentioning that, are you talking about people who are willing to do it? So for instance, you're not going to go in with an idle threat. You don't say, go across town and say, hey, you know, Saint whatever, I'm happy to come here. How much would you pay me? And then go back to say, hey, they're going to give me this much money because I mean, sometimes they're going to say, well, we just can't match that. Right. So you have to, you have to be willing to walk away.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that. You have to be willing to walk away. And it makes it easier for you to walk away if you have a solid, advantageous alternative to consider. So, in negotiation parlance, they call that the BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. What's your best option other than this? If you can't reach an agreement. But, you know, in basic terms, the way we talk about that is just go get an offer. And to go back to what you first said, Eric. I don't bluff. You know, I think that's so important to amplify here is you can't just walk in the room and say, well, they're going to pay me more, you know, say whatever. Cool, then go. Oh, well, uh, actually, <laughs> you're going to be in a really tough spot if you walk into a conversation bluffing, because if they call your bluff, you're going to have to pay me you and know, write that check. And so it's really important. And look, I am fast forwarding through some of this, right? So the first thing we do is talk to your employer and we say, we'd like to get Dr. Larson up to the market. They say, well, we believe Dr. Larson is where the market already is. Great. Totally appreciate that. Then I go to your competitors and start having the conversation about how amazing Dr. Larson is. But really the You know, the employer rarely is going to and and I've never seen it happen, but they'll rarely step up and say, oh, cool. You know what the market is. So we'll pay you that without any additional consideration from you. And,
1: And I, in our negotiations with hospitals and I I can't imagine again, you know, I always add this disclaimer. When I'm talking about Grand Rapids Market or wherever, I don't think really we're that unique. I think that this is people sort of behave the same way everywhere. They have generally have the same incentives. And so any stories that you mentioned, say, the University of Michigan, is probably not a difference than the University of Tennessee or UCLA or whatever. I mean, right, that pretty much everyone has the same uh, list kind of they go down to as far as their steps for negotiation or working things out. But, um, you know, one of the things we would always try and, and emphasize is the, the other sort of uh, I guess values that are not ones that you would, that you can put a price tag on. Like, you know, we're involved in a bunch of committees and we do all this sort of other hospital work that needs to get done. Do hospitals really appreciate that? I mean, do they, do they really see that as a big value? I mean, you try and sell it to the insurance companies. They're like, oh, that's great that you do collect all this quality. Yeah. We don't really care. I mean, it's sort of essentially they do that. We're, we're not gonna give you any extra money for it. We don't, but we think it's great that you're doing it. Is that kind of how the hospitals look at that as well?
0: It is not how the hospitals look at it. So here's a freebie for your practice, um, and I'm sure you guys have a you know a president who's considered all of these things. But one thing to think about in your setting, where you likely have a PSA professional service agreement with hospitals across town, uh, maybe you have a, a call agreement of some sort. Uh, but what you would what you could consider doing is adding medical directorship program leadership. There are also uh, mechanisms or processes called co-management agreements where an external physician group can manage a service at a hospital and you can get a stipend, you know, whatever it is, $10,000 a month for running a program or a service within that hospital. Uh, and you don't have to be an employee of that. But anyways, uh, that like I said, that's, just, that's a freebie. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is really important to also consider the the non-monetary value that you bring in. And when I work for doctors, we talk about you holistically, not just, oh, this is how many RVUs Eric did last, last quarter. This is his patient SAT score. We look at everything. So we you know not only do we talk about your clinical prowess and, and competence, we talk about your medical leadership, your engagement in the medical community. Are you working on anything that's niche or high profile that we can promote? Uh, And those are the things that we package in. Now, of course, it's not going to have this discreet, well, we're going to pay you 10K because you have this committee designation. But when you consider all of those designations and skills that you bring, there is a market value for that, right? Because you're not now you've elevated yourself above the average doctor in the market. And there's a value to that. So when we come to the conversation, we don't talk about it in academic terms, we talk about it in practical terms. Because of Eric's involvement in these committees, he has access to these additional research and resources that's going to benefit the organization. And it it always comes back to how is this designation going to benefit us? Because ultimately, every business is selfish in that respect. We care about our revenue and our expenses so that we can grow, right? And that's not a bad, Way to run a business. It's a it's appropriate way to run a business, but it's also important for doctors to understand where they fit into that process. And when you're asking for money, uh, you have to understand what your CEO's motivations are. And I know that CEOs are motivated by revenue, market share, and quality. And if you can hit on one or all three of those targets, you're gonna the conversation is gonna go well.
1: And when you talk about quality, are you talking about? I feel like a lot of times you see physicians who are, we we'll call them, they call them disruptive physicians, or people who cause trouble, or they don't follow the protocols the hospitals got in place, or whatever. Uh, so that would be sort of fall into that, right? Like if you're the person, and I feel I many groups have this happens to, they have trouble with leadership, or they are so busy they don't have time to have, have people in committees, or to make sure they discipline their partners who are doing the wrong thing. We'll <laughs> just say put it that way. Uh, do you find that that's, that is actually a big motivator for, for hospitals to really push for change? That that's actually the, the greater thing more than even financials?
0: <laughs> it always comes back to financial, Eric. So here, here's how it comes back to financial. Um, Medicare, the governmental payers penalize hospitals for errors, surgical site infections, readmissions into the ER, things like that. And so the hospitals have found shockingly, that doctors have a strong influence on these outcomes and, and clinical metrics. And so what they've done, the smart ones at least, is they've said, hey, Dr. Larson, if you help us improve our surgical site infection rate numbers, we will incentivize you to the tune of $15,000 if you improve you know, 30%. Um, or you know, Dr. Smith, if you provide such amazing care and continuity of care that we have no readmissions over the course of the rest of the year we will incentivize you to the tune of twelve thousand dollars right so hospitals will incentivize physicians where they have a disincentive or a penalty typically Um, other things that you might see rarely will you see incentives tied to patient sat because that tends to um, create some um, maybe unsavory circumstances where you're incentivizing people to write nice things uh, for money Uh, So typically you won't see it around patient SAT, but you will see doctors being incentivized to, to do the care you're already doing. Eric, you go into your care with patients with the intention of providing optimal, amazing care every single time. So why not get compensated in addition for that, right? And so that's what I often tell doctors is quality bonus is one of those things that we ask for every single time. Because you're already going to do the things that are going to achieve the goals. So why not ask for it? But I can almost guarantee if it's, it's one of those things, if you don't ask for it, it's likely not going to be available.
1: You offer this, I think, really unusual service. I mean, you're with this talent agency, right? I mean, it's sort of, how is that different than, uh, you know, most people, when they go to sign a contract, they're going to, they're going to consult their t- attorney or an, an attorney of some sort to say, hey, is this contract Okay. How is what you do different than what that is? I know you're an attorney as well, or at least a bit training, right? You're JD. So what's the difference?
0: I, well, there's two key differences, and I'll illustrate it through a, a cool story. Or at least I think it's a cool story. I love cool stories. <laughs> <laughs> so last summer, I was uh, you know, working with an attorney um, here in town. I'm in Denver, Colorado. I was working with an attorney here in town, and he reached out to me and said, hey, I have a few doctors who would like to go private practice. And I said, interesting, I can help with that. But first, I'd like to know what is compelling them to go private practice. And he said, well, they're frustrated with their employer. They're not getting the, the money that they want. And we've sent them you know, three or four amendments to the contract and employers said not interested. I said, great, that is the perfect time for me to come in and help them identify some opportunities. And so those doctors, there were six of them, these were individual OB-GYNs who all coincidentally worked in the same practice. And so they asked me to help advocate for them on uh, on their behalf collectively. So the first primary difference of, between what I do and what an attorney does is when we hit a stalemate in a contract discussion, that's my time to shine, right? An attorney might say, we can push harder, we can send them more emails, uh, but we're, we kind of hit a wall that's where I get to work. So those doctors, I just like I shared with you a moment ago, Eric, I went into their employer, did my little dance and said, hey, I'm Ethan, would really like for you to pay these doctors according to the market. Shockingly, they said not interested. So I went to work and we ended up getting four offers for those doctors. And again, that is another key difference is that when, when I hit a stalemate, I go get you alternatives. So an attorney typically is not, because it's just not in their job description, it's not a dereliction of duties, it's just not their job to go find you other options. But because I spent a decade and a half in hospitals, I know who's incentivized to bring doctors on. So I just call those folks and say, hey, I have six amazing physicians who are interested in joining your organization. Are you, could there be a mutual interest? And spoiler, there usually is. And so we start a conversation. The goal of that conversation is to get you to a point where you are now considering looking at a stronger option than what you currently have, which is going to compel your current employer to step up and say, we're going to make a change or you know, to your compensation, to your package. So the, the second key difference is doctors don't pay me. So at the end of a, that transaction, those doctors ended up getting a 1.1 annual million dollar, uh, annual salary raise. So what that means is on top of their salaries at the time, which were let's say 2.3 million across cumulative, they got an additional 1.1 um, year over year on their base salaries, so that's W-2 income. Secondarily, the day they signed that contract, they got a check from their employer, current employer didn't change for $40,000 each. They use a portion of that check to pay me. So when this is all over, you're not having to go into savings or take out a loan to pay me. The hospital's writing you a check, and then you're going to use a portion of that check to pay my fee. So the two key differences are: a stalemate is my time to shine, and secondarily, I don't work hourly. You only pay me if we if we get you paid.
1: I was really worried because I know it's been over 15 minutes we've been on, and I thought I was going to get a bill for 15 minutes. Or 15 oh minutes man, I, I, I get that. <laughs>
0: So that, I mean, that's a, it's such an important distinction though, Eric, I think, because yeah. like, you know, I've had that experience myself. I have attorneys and yeah. when I call them, I get a bill and it's, it's a big bill. So yeah. um, I can appreciate taking some of that anxiety out of the uh, situation or the conversation. Like you don't have to think about money while we're working together. The only, if I can't do what I say I can do, I don't get paid. My fee is a percentage of what we earn you. So if I don't earn you anything, what's my fee? It's nothing. Yeah. So really, it's about adding value for doctors. And if I can't do that, um, I don't get paid, uh, or I'll get you to the right person who can help you.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's. I always remember sitting in office. We call our attorney, and we we have the clock on the on the phone. And as soon as we hit fifteen minutes, we kind of look at each other like, "All right, well, I guess we'll talk for fifteen more minutes <laughs> about something oh. else while we got him." Mm-hmm. But isn't that but so that's okay. stressful? It, it it is. I mean. It's, I, it's just the way it goes. Right. And in some ways, my business is the same way, right. For anesthesia, the way we build, we build 15 minute increments as well. So once you pass the 15 minute mark, you get another unit charge, whatever the unit is worth. Right. So I don't know. It's just the way it works, but uh, yeah, I, I, certainly it's just a way a different way of compensating, right. If you, you get compensated for results, I imagine most agents are that way too. Like when you look at correct talent yep. agents, right. And so yep. they get a percentage of whatever, 10% or whatever it might be they decide mm-hmm. on ahead of time. Uh how have you? How have you looked at hospitals now since you've started this business? I mean, do you do you see it more as an, I don't know, adversarial? But or do you feel like you kind of come in? You're kind of like this is kind of not fair because I know exactly what they're thinking. I mean, <laughs> how do you approach the <laughs> yeah. discussions?
0: You know, I will say my opinion on this question has evolved over the past three years. Um, initially, when I started the business it was very adversarial. It was me against the hospitals, there's a win-lose, and I wanna be on the right side of that equation. And what I've learned uh, very quickly is that that's not the way it works. Even for the hospitals that I talk with where their client or my client is their current employer or employee rather, I still don't take that adversarial approach. I want what you want, which is to have a high-quality doctor employed in your medical center to provide care for your patients. Now, what my doctor wants is to be paid what the market is for his or her skills and services. And so ultimately, for for me, there's usually one of the group, the hospitals that may not prefer me to be in the conversation, but there's three or four others to whom I'm bringing doctors that do want me to be a part of the conversation that say hey we're glad you brought us dr larson thanks for introducing us let's talk about how we can improve their situation from where they currently are so yes there may be one the current employer who typically may not love me being around but there's three or four others who see me as a welcome addition to the conversation
1: well and that conversation is different right in certain places like in denver there are plenty of options for people to move around and work at different, what do you go, what do you do in a place like, let's say Billings, Montana, where there's just one, maybe one hospital. I don't know this. I'm just guessing, kind but of like a small town or like where I, I'm situated right now, I'm in Northern Michigan. There's basically one hospital system. If you don't work for them, I mean, you basically have to be independent or leave town. I mean, what do you, how do you approach those conversations with the hospital? I mean, is it, is it sometimes easier because they have so much trouble recruiting people or, I mean, what, how does that work?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of ways to think about that. I think, so when I was in law school, I lived in Dayton, Ohio. And in Dayton, Ohio, it's a kind of a two-party system. It's a two healthcare system where you have um, Kettering Health Network and Miami Valley Health System. And it's a 51-49 situation on any given year, flip a coin on who it is. And so ultimately, the whole game is how do you be on the right side of that 51%? And so it really is, you know, it's a tougher proposition, but at the same time, the the rules of the game are still the same. We have to buy patients and the way we can assure ourselves of buying patients is by having the doctors that care for those patients. And so the way the hospitals are thinking about is if we can control the doctors in the market, then we can control the flow of the patients, right? And so often hospitals will, um, you know, in a two party system or a two hospital system, market um, they will just be battling over surgeons over primary care docs you know how do we build our primary care network because that's your referral network and then your surgery um, your surgery physicians are the ones who generate all the revenue for the for the organization the other thing that I think about is, most hospitals today are part of an idn which is called integrated delivery network which means that they have many hospitals and many clinics that support those hospitals so when i work with doctors typically we'll look about an hour away from where the current practice is and the reason for that is not because you want to move an hour away right i I have no intention of making a move i don't want you to be where you are keep your kids where you are your social network the thing we want to do though is take advantage of any hospital systems that may not be in your immediate market, but may have a presence in your market. So a lot of times what hospitals will do is they'll say, all right, let's say, so if you're in northern Michigan, that's probably Ascension or Trinity or Spectrum. So let's say it's one of those healthcare systems. There's likely a competing healthcare system in the town next to you, and they probably have a clinic or some type of a presence where the competitor is in your town. And so the way they begin to claw away at that market share is by buying more and more and more in that town where they don't have a presence in your town. And now those patients are flowing into their IDN, their integrated delivery network. So yes, you may be, you may only have one party in town, but there's often are, you know more than one hospital system that have a presence, and you leverage the presence because they're gonna try, those competitors are gonna try to chip away at the market share of. You're uh, kind of the incumbent, uh, whether that's Spectrum, spectrum, Trinity, or Ascension.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. And I had thought about that. But yeah, you, you see those satellite clinics from other health systems all over the place. And yeah, in within each other's market, it's competing on the edges, right? It's like the skirmishes on the borders. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit because you, you touched on this a little bit with just in that show on private equity groups. I think you guys were talking about that a little bit. We've seen that a lot for these single specialty groups, whether it's anesthesia or ophthalmology, dermatology. You've seen a lot where you have people come in, they sell their practice. And then what happens is now you have, you have basically, you decrease the compensate. You, you pay out a bunch to an extra upfront, and then you pay everyone less for the next seven years or so. And so if you're close to retirement or or you have a concentrated ownership at the top, you walk away with a lot of money. But the people who are You know, just starting out or new hires are going to be making a lot less money in that sort of system. But what this always requires is those private equity groups—they have to sell out in six or seven years to another private equity group, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Like you, it's like uh, these syndicates for real estate—you you you buy something for six to hold it for six seven years, and then you sell it at a profit in six seven years. The plan is never to hold it for thirty years, right? Mm -hmm. And and so it you know someone has to keep grabbing the bag at six seven years. It seems to me, and maybe you disagree. That this is not a really a sustainable model for for these for these groups because there'll be it makes you harder have a harder time hiring people at a lower salary than your competitors who are not in a private equity uh, situation, and so you're you're going to be struggling to maintain your contracts and and those sorts of things. I mean, I see that in anesthesia, at least in the state of Michigan, that these groups are really struggling to to hire people. What do you I mean, what I guess what do you think about that situation? Do you agree with that? And then do you think that it's sort of non-sustainable and that it's going to have to shift at some point?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I've been asked that before. And I talk about private equity quite a bit, like you said, Justin and I talked about it. Huh. I don't know if I'm, and I have to think about it more. I tend to be a processor, so I want to think about this idea of the sustainability of that model. What I will say about my experience with private equity is that they are very prescriptive about where they invest. So as you mentioned, anesthesia, interventional pain, dermatology, you also see it in plastics, anesthesiology. Um, They're very prescriptive about the business models. Even you're starting to see them in OBGYN as well. And yes, there are some downsides if you're a doctor who is interested in having the highest level of income that you can get in the market right now. Private equity is not going to provide you that. However, what it will provide you that a traditional employment will not is some type of uh, some type of benefit at the end, something that you can look forward to. So if you join a private equity firm as a physician, you become a shareholder, you can partake in that sale financially. So, yes, you'll have to wait for that, you know, wait some period of time for that investment to mature and, and be sold. But I think at the you know there is some benefit to getting something at the very end, which you don't get as an employee. Now private equity, I think the other thing to think about is optimization. To your point, you you invest in private equity with the intention of selling it at a multiple at some point down the road, which means that you want to improve the asset that you're holding financially. And so many private equity firms tend to take this very strong approach to optimization. Which sometimes cuts counter to physicians spending as much time as they want with patients, providing the depth, not being kind of like encouraged to be busier. Um, So, you know, I, I do think that there are some, you know, benefits and drawbacks to private equity. I think private equity is more so than where you are in your career, I think it's more so a mindset. Like the doctor has to have the right mindset to be private equity um, as opposed to an employee or private practice.
1: That's interesting. Cause I would, my, my impression, and again, I'm not part of that situation, so I can't speak for that, is that it feels like you just have a different employer as opposed to, uh, you know, when you're with a healthcare system, especially when you were previously a private practice, for instance, or maybe a single special group. And then now you have a master where you didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Now, of course the reality is that there's always a master. There's always, and you, know, you have to, you're, playing for the insurance company or whomever the hospital submit you're working for with exclusive contracts, whatever it is, there's still someone who has control over things. You're never, you're never totally free and that's just life in general, right? That's mm-hmm. not unique mm-hmm. to, um, yeah, that's, it's interesting. I guess we'll see how that goes because I, in some ways I think that, that if you don't have the, there's value propositions not there for the private equity group, they will have no one left to purchase it. If, if someone doesn't come in thinking they're going to make more money, like run things more smoothly, or we have, um you know we can cut costs by uh, our bigness we can have we can negotiate better than you could with your small group with the, the large insurers or something like that if you can't find that value proposition i think it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in some ways it seems a lot like a the healthcare systems and to that point i mean do you see a big difference between nonprofit or for profit healthcare systems i mean everyone decries one on the you know you'll see people saying oh one's terrible one's so much better i from my impression, they don't seem a whole lot different to me. They don't seem to operate a whole lot differently, except I guess where the profits go. You know, is that is that accurate? <laughs> you shake your head, so I assume. You're, I mean, look, part, you
0: you could probably you know you may ask all of your guests this, and you probably get a hundred different perspectives on it. My view of it is it's a distinction without a difference from the perspective of the physician. So yes, working for a for-profit organization, what you you know who you're accountable to is different than who you're accountable to in a nonprofit. What you do with your revenue and your income and what's left over, that's all different as well and that's prescriptive if you're a nonprofit healthcare system. Um but from the perspective of of a physician, it's a distinction without a difference. And what I mean by that is hospitals are still motivated to turn a profit they're still motivated to keep expenses low. And if anything, a nonprofit is more motivated to keep their expenses low, uh, which which they sometimes will uh, use salaries as a way to do that. Um, But I don't know that that's a meaningful difference. Um, One meaningful difference though, um, one of my clients um, who's coming out of training, she and I draw a distinction because of PSLF, public service loan forgiveness. So, if you work for a 501c3 nonprofit, you can be eligible to have your loans forgiven by the government for 10 years of on-time payments versus working for a for-profit organization where you would not be eligible. So again, that doesn't change your day-to-day work life, but um, very meaningful financial implications working for a nonprofit versus a for-profit for student loans.
1: What have you found to be the most rewarding part of your, your, your journey here the last few years? that you've started. I mean, is it just starting your business? Is it being out on your own or is it, is it some, some stories you had from along the way?
0: And, you know, Eric, on a very regular basis, I find myself saying, I love what I get to do every day. Not just because of the content. I love contracts, negotiation. I like conflict a little bit in, you know, in the right context, um, But what I really, what really makes me fulfilled is when I am able to advocate for doctors who thought they had no voice in the conversation, who thought that, you know, some of the words that you use to describe, you know, how doctors feel about themselves is disposable or replaceable or unimportant. Um, I do everything in my power to cause you to feel the opposite of those feelings when we work together and because my mother's a physician and I just have the deepest admiration for her, I see it as my duty to do the same for her colleagues. And it just, I mean, I know that I'm not like in the family business, but I kind of feel like I'm in the family business. I get to help doctors like my mom. And so um, it just makes me so deeply fulfilled. You know, I had lunch with a client um, who's out of town a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of the conversation, his wife was there. At the end of the conversation, I could just see how grateful he was that we were having this conversation to get him to where he needs to be. And it just gave me this deep sense of humility. Like, I'm so fortunate to get to do this every day.
1: Yeah, I think when you talk to physicians, I mean, the number one satisfier is the relationship they develop with their patients. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about all, across all fields, 85%, that's the number one thing that drives physicians to do what they do. I mean, all the other things, yes, you work to make money, you work for a vacation, you work for all those things, but ultimately, it's the relationships that you form with your patients and then, you know, also your colleagues. And um, you asked me before we even went on the air about this show and what I was doing, and, and I think it's finding people who do dis- disruptive things and providing value in places where they, I think they probably didn't anticipate finding value and and helping people in ways they did not. And it's great that you can get compensated to do something that you really enjoy. I mean, that's kind of why I'm in medicine. I really enjoy it uh, and they pay me to do it. So it's, it's fantastic. So I'm glad that you're able to find the same fulfillment in what you're doing as well at Rocky Mountain Physician Agency. So Ethan in Ghana, tell people how they can find more about you. This will all be on the show notes page too, of course, at paradox.com.
0: Yeah, first and foremost, my socials on Instagram is physician Agency. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. My website, which is www.rmpa, that's robertmarypauladam.co. But yeah, reach out to me, call me, text me. My info will be in the show notes. I love talking about this stuff. So even, and and like Eric said, I'm not going to punch the clock the moment you call me. So (laughs) if you want to do a price check or just want to talk about how crummy the situation you're in is, uh, I'm here to listen. Um, I talk to doctors every day. So I love hearing
1: stories of doctors around the country. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for being on The Paradox. I really appreciate the conversation. It was a delight. Here.
0: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Yeah. yeah.